itself. So in recent years, uh, we have tried to implement in our yearly sermon schedule a New Testament series, an Old Testament series, and some topical sermons. And, uh, and you can expect to see that routine again for 2024. During the first part of this year, we will be working through Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, which we will begin today. And then later in the year, we'll spend some time surveying the, uh, those Old Testament books that give us an account of ancient Israel's history. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And as we have done in the past, various members of our church body will help in those presentations. And as to be expected, there will be a number of topical sermons scattered throughout the course of the year as well. And this is a familiar format and one that has worked uh, for us uh, pretty well. So 1st Thessalonians. Um, as far as I can remember, we have never really, really looked at that letter all that closely. It was never a sermon series here, and if memory serves me well, it's, not a, it's never been a subject in a home group study either. It's a relatively short book about, uh, not about, it's relatively, it is a short book, just five chapters long. Uh, there isn't really anything all that unusual about it that would typically catch anyone's attention, there are no difficult or controversial passages to speak of, at least nothing all that major. The section that gets the most attention is found in chapter 4, where Paul encourages his readers about the promise of Christ's second coming. It is a popular passage and a favorite of many, and I've, I probably read it at every funeral that I've been asked to officiate, at least of every funeral where the deceased uh, was a Christian. The, pa uh, the passage is the only one in the Bible that speaks of a rapture that believers who are alive when Jesus returns will be caught up together uh, to meet him in the air. And there are a lot of different views about that, the nature of the rapture, the timing of it, uh, what happens after that, and so on. And, and you know, like, do we all go up to the sky into heaven, or do we come back down with Jesus, and all that, and so on. Uh, but other than this, the topics that come up in this letter aren't ones that really generate all that, all that much debate. That would be the main one. I'm not sure how many weeks it will take to cover these five chapters. If I finish ahead of schedule, we might continue on with 2 Thessalonians. So unlike some of the previous New Testament studies, just to kind of give you a heads up here, I don't intend to work through every phrase of every verse. Sometimes we've been pretty detailed. Uh, there will be times when we will break things down uh, um, like we will this morning a little bit. But Paul's train of thought in this book is pretty straightforward. It's easy to follow, and for the most part, he doesn't introduce us to any groundbreaking theology, so to speak, at least nothing that requires vigorous study. Uh, First Thessalonians isn't anything like Romans, for instance. Uh, though it is not an ambitious book to study, it is a valuable book to study. There is much here that we can learn and benefit from and be encouraged by. Of his many letters, uh, this one of Paul's tends to be more relational and less didactic. Uh, there is more said about Paul's association with this church, his past experiences with his past experience with them, and their mutual friendship, than uh, what it is that they are expected to believe, or for that matter, how they are expected to behave. There's certainly some of that in the letter, but not as much as when as compared to other letters. So over the past. Uh, months, I've read this letter numerous times, countless times, using different translations. This can be quite helpful in, in helping you see things that you might otherwise 
that might otherwise pass you by. And I was hoping to narrow in on one translation down to one as a favorite that we would use here on Sunday mornings. Um, I did not end up with a favorite, but the version I thought was the easiest to follow and did a pretty good job of capturing the gist of the text and is readily available to all of us was the New Living Translation. Uh, we'll be referring to other translations, but this one will probably be the main one. So just a quick review here. If you remember from our discussion on various versions of the Bible a few years back, the NLT lands squarely in, on the functional equivalent side of the spectrum. There, the objective of the translators is to provide more of a thought-for-thought -thought rendering of a passage, striving for accuracy and meaning. This is different than formal equivalence, where the objective is to capture more of a word-for-word -word rendering of a verse, striving for accuracy of the text. So every translation does both to some degree, and I always suggest that Christians should read from both uh, side by side. So given the nature of this letter, again, not heavy on theology, it seems that if there were ever a time when the, when the NLV could be uh, an appropriate or acceptable version to use, well, this might be it. And though it is often accused of being a paraphrase, it is not. It's an actual translation. The committee worked directly from the Greek text and did not take the same kind of liberties that we see in paraphrases like the Message or the Good News Bible or the Passion Bible and, and those similar to that. So we have an ambitious agenda for this morning. Um, the plan is to cover verse 1 of chapter 1. See how ambitious that is? Just one verse. Um, but after this morning, the pace uh, hopefully will pick up a little bit. So, all right, everyone ready? This letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We are writing to the church in Thessalonica, to you who belong to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God give you peace and grace. So, four observations, four points for us to work through. Uh, three are relatively short and easy. The fourth will require more time and effort. First, this is the type of greeting that we find in other letters of Paul. There's nothing all that unusual about it. He begins by naming who the letter is from and then extends a blessing, grace and peace to you. Pretty common. Paul notes that they belong to God, and so right away we know that he is writing to converts. Again, pretty obvious. Some ancient manuscripts include a few additional words in that last sentence there. Uh, may God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. It is doubtful that this is how it was in the original, but if so, it would make this greeting here in 1 Thessalonians identical, exactly, word for word, to the greeting in 2 Thessalonians. So whatever the case, it doesn't really change the meaning here one way or the other. I just thought that was an interesting uh, piece of um, information. Secondly, Though we typically refer to this as Paul's letter, it actually comes from three people, Paul and his two co-workers, Silas and Timothy. We know who Paul is, we know a little bit about Timothy, and we have all heard of Silas. Timothy and Silas are mentioned not because they helped write the letter, it is written in first person singular, it's Paul's writing, but because they are with Paul, and when he first came, because they were with Paul when he first came into their city and presented the gospel, the readers note Silas and Timothy, and they are now with Paul and when he writes, when he writes this letter, and so he's, what he says represents their thoughts as well. <clears throat> so again, all that said, it's still appropriate to refer to this as Paul's letter. Now, if I, on a side note, if I were to ask you, 
between Silas and Timothy, which one was the more dominant figure in the early church, your first thought would probably be who? Timothy. And this because we have a couple New Testament letters named after him, and um, he is more well-known to us. But Timothy is a young man, one who is being discipled by Paul, somewhat of an apprentice. He is not really a mover and a shaker, uh, especially at this point um, in history. But Silas was. Uh, Silas was a prominent leader in the church at Jerusalem, the mother church, the base of early Christianity itself. And so he was well known to early Christians, uh, if not all that well known to us. One thing that we do know is that he was a close companion to Paul, and the two of them traveled together spreading the good news of Christ's kingdom. And Silas is also known in the New Testament by his Latin name, Silvanus. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Silvanus? All right. Sometimes in the book of Acts, Luke will refer to Paul and Silas going to certain places and doing certain things and so on. We know that Timothy is also with them, but the author doesn't mention him, and this because he wasn't a dominant figure in those situations. And we see that in other parts of the Bible as well. Third observation, it is written to the believers in Thessalonica. So where is that, and what do we know about that city? Uh, Thessalonica is a city here on the southeast side of Macedonia, modern-day Greece, and it, it was the largest, it was its largest and most important city and served as the capital of Macedonian's Roman province. And uh, Paul wrote this letter during his 18th month ministry in Corinth, uh, which is um, down there, you can see that on the map as well. So religiously, Thessalonica had something for everyone. As a, as a popular Greek city, it had its share of temples and shrines devoted to Greek deities. Along that line, one could expect to find centers that advanced Greek philosophies. And because it was the capital of the Roman province, there was the worship of Roman deities as well. Thessalonica was one of the earliest churches to worship the Roman emperor. In fact, the city even minted coins declaring him to be divine. It also had a sanctuary devoted to the worship of various Egyptian gods. And for those who were into what we call the mystery religions, well, there was plenty of that as well. So again, something for everyone. You may remember that in the ancient world, religious activity was closely closely linked to civic duty. We've talked about that before. In Thessalonica, city leaders cherished and fostered religious devotion to the Roman emperor in order to solidify good relationships with Rome. So people could worship any god or gods that they wanted to, but it was also expected of them to include in that worship the emperor. And so anyone who resisted that idea was viewed as, you know, suspicious, probably a traitor. And the more who refused to venerate the emperor, the more Thessalonica's favored relationship with Rome would be jeopardized, thus threatening the city's political and economic well-being. This is, these concepts are foreign to us today, but that's how it worked in the ancient world. So we'll want to keep that in mind as we, work, as we look at Paul's uh, first um, visit there and the reaction to the gospel that he preached. Uh, to proclaim exclusive devotion to another deity, for example, was in essence an attack on the city itself. In such an environment, preaching Christ and the message of his kingdom amounted to basically treason. All right, the remaining question, 
now is why, why did Paul write this letter? What prompted, what prompted, what prompted him? And this is, of course, a very important question. It's a question that um, will be the most relevant to our understanding of 1 Thessalonians, and it will just take a little bit more time to answer. So as a review here, all letters in the New Testament are what we call occasional documents, not to be confused with occasionally, but occasional. An occasional document means that there was an occasion, a situation that prompted the author to write the letter and to say the things that he said, all right? So perhaps the first question we want to ask of any letter is, why was it written? And to answer that, we need to know the occasion behind it. Sometimes the author is answering questions that were sent back to him. We see that in the New Testament. Sometimes he is addressing problems that he has learned about. We see letters like that as well. Sometimes the purpose of a letter is to provide encouragement or to issue a warning or to lay out some essential instructions or to expose false teaching and offer sound doctrine as a correction. And sometimes a letter is simply a follow-up to a previous letter or to a previous visit. And more times than not, there is more than one purpose going on. The occasion and the purpose, of course, go hand in hand. And we can often get somewhat of a grasp of these from the information contained in the letter itself. <clears throat> Whenever the author mentions certain events or places or people, you know, the kinds of details that we often skip over in our reading, thinking that they are not important, well, those are the details that can often be key components in reconstructing the occasion and determining the letter's purpose. All right, follow me so far? <clears throat> so, <clears throat> along with internal evidence, information in the letter itself is external evidence, information available apart from the letter. External evidence could be another book in the New Testament or something we know from the history and culture of that time and place and so on. Even, even knowing some of the geography can be useful. And this is where study Bibles can be helpful. In the introduction to each letter, there will be a couple paragraphs or so giving us the backstory and the reason the letter was written. And scholars and Bible commentators, experts in their fields, have done really all this hard work for us. And so anytime you read one of those uh, letters in the New Testament, I would encourage you to start with those introductory paragraphs, those introductions. All right, now, the backstory to 1 Thessalonians is one of the easiest ones to reconstruct. And once we are aware of it, mindful of it, Everything in the letter just seems to snap into place. This backstory, this occasion, can be pieced together, again, from information we have in the letter itself and also from information outside the letter, namely the book of Acts. And the best way to approach this, I think, is to go back to when this church got started in the first place. And... Um, if we just take time to really work through this, it will actually help us a lot in understanding the letter. And um, all of it happened during Paul's second missionary uh, journey. How many missionary journeys did he have? Three, and not including the one where he went to Rome as a prisoner. All right, chapters 15 through 18 of the book of Acts lays out this second missionary journey for us. So this morning you get two for the price of one. All right. Along with the study of 1 Thessalonians, we'll include at no extra charge a study of some of the chapters in Acts as well. Isn't that great? <clears throat> but wait, call in the next five minutes. <clears throat> yes, yeah, well, well, you'll get a lesson on geography. <laughs> 
and, and some more hermeneutics. I mean, it doesn't get any better, but you got to call in the next five minutes. And they run that commercial for months, you know, it's in the next five minutes only. <clears throat> so how can you resist? So last week's sermon was more interesting. This week's sermon will be less controversial, which means my afternoon will be more restful. All right. So <clears throat> if I can keep my voice for the rest of it here. All right. <clears throat> but in all seriousness, this is the sort of stuff we should be familiar with. We have a whole book in the New Testament that gives us a history of the early church, 27 chapters. And so apparently God thought that we should know this stuff. So we're going to take some time today to know it. Um, <clears throat> this, the second of these three missionary journeys, the one that we are interested in, took around three and a half years. So we'll track this journey from beginning to end, and we'll come back, and we'll, we'll come to see how the church in Thessalonica got started and all the events surrounding that, and we'll use um, these nifty maps on the slideshow to help us see how this trip unfolds, and hopefully taking time to establish the historical context, again, will prove useful in getting us to appreciate all that's going on in the letter itself. So what we, what we call Paul's second, second missionary journey began around the year 49, sometime after the Jerusalem Council had affirmed that Gentiles were, after all, full Christians and were not required to be circumcised. Uh, they sent Paul and Barnabas to Antioch to deliver their decision about that because it was at Antioch where this question was stirring up controversy. So while at Antioch, Paul suggested that he and Barnabas revisit the churches they had planted during their first missionary journey, which took place about a year or two earlier. And so this missionary journey actually started out as something like an inspection tour, that of checking in on churches that Paul and Barnabas had planted earlier in Galatia. So that sounds like a great plan. So here they are in Antioch, putting together their plans for this trip, and things just immediately go haywire. Paul and Barnabas get into a heated argument over one of their co-workers, a young man from Jerusalem known as John Mark, who was part of the first missionary team. Paul did not want to take him, uh, thought him to be unreliable, but Barnabas disagreed and sharply disagreed. And this may have something to do with the fact that Barnabas and Mark were cousins. Whatever the case, this, dis this, disagre this disagreement escalated to the point, as we all, know, we all know the story, that in the end, the two of them parted ways. Close friends, now unwilling to work together. Barnabas took uh, John Mark and sailed west to the island of C Cyprus, while Paul headed north with Silas to Syria and Sicilia. The two of them visited Derby, and they traveled on to Lystra, where they picked up Timothy. It appears that he became a believer when Paul made his first visit to that city. I can't hardly really see. Is this, is that circles? Okay, good. I missed a slide there somehow. All right, so seeing his zeal for the faith, Paul may have invited him to join them, or Timothy, eager to serve the kingdom in something so challenging and exciting, begged them to, you know, take them along so he could spend time with these two giants of the faith. Um, we're not sure. In the years to come, as we all know, he becomes Paul's closest and most loyal companion, a son in the faith, a lifelong co-worker. And Timothy is mentioned in the greetings of six of Paul's letters, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and First and Second Thessalonians. The three of them 
went on from town to town in the regions of Phrygia and Galatia, strengthening the faith in these, area, in these churches here in this area. And as we read, the number of believers increased daily, where they would go, check up on these churches, they would spend time there preaching the gospel, and there'd be more converts. They wanted to go north to, into the region of Bithynia and spread the gospel there, but the Holy Spirit prevented them. Uh, we're not told the details of that. All we know is that they decided to go on to the town of Troas. <clears throat> While in Troas, Paul received a vision of a man asking them to come to Macedonia. Paul believed this to be more than a casual dream, a message from God. And so this small team, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, now joined by Luke, sailed from Troas to Macedonia and eventually made their way to the city of Philippi. Is Philippi circled? I can't see back there. I, went, I, I, I like I reviewed all this. So I don't know what's wrong. All right. <clears throat> so what started off as a follow-up tour now becomes something much more than what they originally planned. It becomes clear that the Lord had additional plans for them. <clears throat> Excuse me. There in Philippi, they encountered a girl who followed them around everywhere they went, a girl who had the ability to predict the future. Troubled by her bondage to a demon, Paul cast it out of her. The problem was she was a slave, and her owner had earned quite a fortune from her supernatural abilities. Outraged, he brought Paul and Silas before the city magistrates, accusing them of promoting customs that are illegal for Romans to practice. And they were beaten, stripped, severely flogged, and thrown into prison. Now, most of us would be really angry about the injustice and wondering why God would allow something like this, especially since we've given up so much to do his work. But they, however, while chained in prison, sang hymns of praise to God. It is unclear whether Timothy is with them or not, but um, we could assume that he, he may have been. <clears throat> that night, God caused an earthquake, which not only opened up all the prison doors, but also broke all the chains. And startled, the, the jailer rushed in, and to make a long story short, ended up believing in Jesus and getting baptized. In the morning, the magistrates freed Paul and Silas, but Paul refused to leave without a public apology for the way they, they had been treated as, uh, because they were, after all, Roman citizens. So all that now leads us up to what happens next in Acts 17. After this incident, there in Philippi, they travel on to Thessalonica. And we can take information from Acts 17 and information from 1 Thessalonians, reconstruct the timeline of events, which will again help us learn the occasion that prompted the writing of the letter. In the opening verses of this chapter, we learn that Paul proclaimed the gospel of Christ in the synagogue there um, for three Sabbaths. Now, this has led some to conclude that Paul was only there for three weeks. But more likely, it was his opportunity in the synagogue that was limited to three weeks. The Jewish leaders didn't like what they heard, and so after facing resistance from them, it appears that Paul uh, turned his focus to the Gentiles. Acts 17 tells us that converts included both Jews and Gentiles, and something worth noting, a number of prominent women of the city. So this was a very fruitful visit. We're not sure how long he is there, but whatever it was, it was successful. The reception to the gospel was probably the highlight of his whole missionary trip. And again, Paul finds himself here because of the vision he received in a dream of a man begging him to come. 
So within a short time, these out-of-town preachers became citywide news. We could imagine that they wanted to stay longer, but things soon came to an abrupt end. The claims about Christ that Paul spoke about, along with all of these conversions going on, provoked no small amount of opposition among a certain group of envious Jews. Verse 5 refers to jealous Jews, quote, who rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. And they formed a mob and started a riot in the city. So apparently a man named Jason had opened up his home to Paul and his co-workers. Jason himself was, was a new convert. And so this mob stormed at Jason's house, probably looking for Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Not finding them, they arrested Jason instead and accused him of helping out these lawless drifters who were, quote, causing trouble all over the world and have brought this trouble now to our city. And um, this because they are teaching others supposedly to defy, to defy Caesar and to serve another king named Jesus. And as you, will, as you will recall from comments earlier, this sort of thing was perceived as a very serious offense against the state. It's no less than treason. So the account in Acts tells us that Jason posted bond, which probably involves some sort of guarantee on his part that these out-of-towners would not be causing any more problems. And fearing that their ongoing presence in the city will only result in further hostilities toward the new believers there, Paul believes it is best to leave town so that things will quiet down. And they slip out at night unnoticed and head to Berea. So their time there in Thessalonica is quite short, but yet very productive. Many converts, but also lots of opposition, intense opposition. And that's how the church got started there. And it's, that's just good stuff to know. We'll... Uh, there's a bit more to the story, and so we're going to continue on. In the verses that follow, we see that this opposition follows them to Berea, about 50 miles away. Is that what's circled? And uh, the Bereans listen to Paul's teaching and carefully examine the scriptures to determine if his teaching was true. As a result, many in Berea believed in the gospel message as well. Unfortunately, the non-believing Jews from Thessalonica that caused up so much trouble there, they arrived to stir up trouble here. And so Paul, not wanting to bring unnecessary grief to the new believers in Berea, he heads off to Athens. Silas and Timothy, however, stay behind for a little while. <clears throat> when, Paul is in, when Paul reached Athens, he preached both in the synagogue and in the marketplace. He used references, you all know the story, to their unknown God and quoted one of their Greek poets in order to appeal to the Athenians some believed, others mocked, others seemed interested only in intellectual stimulation. The reaction there is mixed. During his time there, Paul still has the Thessalonians on his mind. Things there were going so well, and then it all went south so quickly. And as to be expected, he is worried about the new converts there. He did not have um, sufficient time to ground them in the faith. And the persecution they faced was not only swift, but also intense and he fears that they may have abandoned the faith, which given the circumstances would probably be a safe thing to assume or to worry about. And so Paul finds the whole thing very intolerable. He can't stand it. He wants to go back and visit them, but he doesn't, claiming that Satan prevents him from doing so. Now, he doesn't explain what he means by that, but it's probably a reference to the intense hostility he would face and bring up on others if he were to ever walk into that city again. Jason himself, of course, would be in big trouble. Eventually, Silas and Timothy meet up with Paul there in Athens, and Paul doesn't waste any time once they arrive. 
he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to find out what's going on because he is desperate for a report. And this is something he refers to in his letter in chapter 5, where he writes, So when I could stand it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. And Silas, it appears, heads up to Philippi to check on the new believers there, who also experienced similar opposition. Paul then leaves Athens and heads over to nearby Corinth. Timothy is en route to Thessalonica. All right, following so far? You like geography? You like timelines? Like history? All right, good. <laughs> In Corinth, um, <clears throat> Paul meets up with fellow Jews and tent makers Aquila and Priscilla, who are also Christians. He stays with them, joins them in their business of making tents. He begins by teaching in the synagogue, but as often the case, the Jews there oppose him. And once again, he turns his attention to the Gentiles. Many believe and are baptized. He is there in Corinth for a year and a half. Uh, that's out of sync. And it's, yes. And at some point, all right, I should have two, all right. I think I got the right one. At some point during this time, Timothy and Silas make their way to Corinth as well, and the three of them are teamed up once again. I have Corinth highlighted. Okay. Timothy brings back a report about his visit to the church there in Thessalonica. And to Paul's great relief and great joy, it turns out to be a positive report. He is just overwhelmed. Upon this report, while still in Corinth, he follows up and writes a letter to them. And that letter is what? First Thessalonians. And soon afterwards, he follows that up with another letter called... Very good. All right. So these are the events that led up to the writing of First Thessalonians. This is the backstory. This is the occasion that caused Paul to write this letter. And knowing the occasion, again, is instrumental in helping us to discover the letter's purpose, which in turn helps us to better understand the contents of the letter. So we'll get more into that in a moment, but let's just go ahead and wrap up the second missionary journey because one never knows where questions like this might show up on a quiz. At some point, uh, Paul decides it's time to return home. He takes a shortcut sailing across the Aegean Sea to Ephesus, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. We can assume that Silas and Timothy are with him as well. There in Ephesus, he preaches in the synagogue and is warmly received. The new believers there encourage him to stay longer, but he is eager to get back home before the end of the sailing season, which would be the beginning of November. So he leaves Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus and promises to return at a later date and sets sail for Caesarea. Uh, he then visits the church in Jerusalem, doesn't stay there very long, it doesn't appear, before returning to Antioch in Syria. So that's the gist of Paul's second missionary journey. Um, <clears throat> so here it is again, just to kind of summarize it. When Paul first visits them, there is immediately an encouraging reception to the message of Christ, his kingdom, and the salvation he offers. Many converts, but there is also opposition, hostile opposition. And so to help ease that tension, Paul decides it best to leave and best not to come back. But in so doing, he becomes more and more troubled about the situation there. Are the new believers being persecuted? Are they sticking with it? If so, are they growing in the faith? How are they doing? 
It gets to the point where he simply cannot stand it any longer. He just has to know. The whole thing's intolerable. And so he sends Timothy to find out what's going on and to bring back a report. The report Timothy brings back is a positive one, brings him much relief and joy. Upon hearing this report, Paul follows up with them with a letter, the letter we know of as 1 Thessalonians. So that's it. We all got it. Having reconstructed the occasion, it's now a simple task to determine the letter's main purpose. And it's the sort of thing that we would expect. He wants to affirm them, expresses joy that they're hanging in there, encourage them to stick with it, compliment them for their perseverance, and convey to them his own personal love and appreciation for them. So if you read 1 Thessalonians this week, it was like part of the assignment, all that would sound familiar. <clears throat> and now you have the context for it. However, Paul's Timothy report, however, Timothy's report also included some other information. Uh, there are a few matters that kind of concern Paul. No big problems, but yet some follow-up is necessary. So we might refer to these as a secondary purpose or secondary matters. And these are easily discoverable from reading the letter itself. There are primarily four concerns. First is Paul's integrity. Those who were opposing the gospel in Thessalonica, and there were no shortage of them, were accusing Paul of selfish motives. And it appears that they were having some effect. Um, some of the new converts were beginning to question Paul's intentions and why, uh, why he, uh, upon the time when he was there and why he was there. The first half of this letter is largely that of defending his ministry and the ministry of his co-workers. He provides first-hand experiences proving that they were not motivated by greed or power, as the accusations had suggested. <clears throat> Second is persecution. As we know, the gospel was extremely controversial in this city, meeting no small measure of hostility, even stirring up riots in the streets. Though he is encouraged by their perseverance, he knows that it is unreasonable to expect any relief from it. Things could even get worse, and so he exhorts them to remain steadfast in the faith because the reward will be with it. Third is proper moral conduct. Uh, Paul didn't have much time with them to ground them in the faith and explain how to live lives worthy of the gospel they have received. And so there are a number of different passages where he, where he exhorts them to live holy lives. One that especially stands out is there in chapter 4 where he addresses in more detail uh, the need for sexual purity. And then the fourth, of course, deals with Christ's return. He, he elaborates on that event, explaining what will happen at that moment. Uh, with those who have died and with those who are still alive. And they probably all had questions about that sort of thing, and Paul tells them to find comfort in the fact that the righteous will be resurrected and will, together with all the saints, be with the Lord forever. Okay, so we'll continue this next week. Next week we'll look at how the book is structured, kind of the flow of thought. Briefly consider the question of whether Paul is really the author or not. Summarize some of the key themes that we will find in this letter, and we'll also um, consider the composition of this particular church, that is, what do we know about its members, that would be helpful information, and we'll finish up by memorizing all 89 verses in the Greek, okay? So, and if you don't want to memorize it in the Greek, then I'll give you another option of reading it three times this week in a respectable English translation. So which option do you want? All right, so all those who said option two, I expect you to do that for next week. All right, but it would be helpful if you read all five chapters in one 
in one sitting because um, it's a short letter. It only takes about 10 or 15 minutes to read. Pretty easily you can do that and just read the whole thing through because otherwise it will feel a bit dis disjointed. All right, thank you. Josh? Thank you, Wendell. I appreciate the, the due diligence and care in which you're setting the foundation for the study of this letter. I think we have a lot that we'll be able to, to learn in this series, so I'm looking forward to it. Let's stand together. We'll read from Galatians 1, verses 3 through 4. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed. Go in peace.